Beginning in Genesis, the Lord speaking to Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out. That's the exodus. They shall come out with great possessions. Then to Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, our focus this morning is Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our focus is on Moses, the writer of Hebrews, is giving us a long list of heroes of faith. We have looked at the faith of the antediluvian fathers, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and now Moses. It's interesting to me that the writer of Hebrews gives the life of Moses its evaluation in terms of the new covenant, the fulfillment of the new covenant, which is fulfilled in the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And that's the perspective that the writer here has. And he mentions things that are not in the biblical record. Now that's not surprising because Moses wrote the biblical record. The book of Exodus and then the books following give us the story of the life and ministry of Moses as he led God's people out of Egypt. And that's what 
the name Moses sounds like a Hebrew word that means out of. The Pharaoh's daughter named him that when she took him out of the water in the Nile in the bulrushes. But it meant so much more than that. Moses was going to get out of Egypt. He was going to go back into Egypt and lead God's people out of Egypt. And he wrote the story, Moses did. And the Bible says that Moses was an humble and a meek person. And our biblical record leaves out a lot of detail. But we have some other sources. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, a Greek-speaking Jew, preached a long sermon. And in that sermon, he spends quite a bit of time talking about the life and the faith and the importance of Moses for God's people and for salvation's history and for redemption's story. Philo, the philosopher, wrote about Moses and gave us some more detail in his works. Josephus, the Jewish historian, with his immense detail in his antiquities, tells us even more about the life of Moses. There's a great untold story about the first 40 years of his life in which he spent in Egypt, the next 40 years of his life spent in the desert of Midian, and then the final 40 years back in the wilderness, leading God's people through the wilderness, eventually to the promised land. Moses was raised up by God to be the deliverer. It's interesting that when Noah was born, it said that he was named because they saw in him a potential to bring relief to God's people. In the midst of all the sin that was taking place in the days of Noah's parents in Noah's day, Moses' parents saw in Moses the potential. He said he was a beautiful child, a worthy child, a child of destiny, a child of God's purpose. And we don't know what the nature of that revelation was, whether it was manifest oracle or where it was just a deep sense of intuition that the time had come, the 430 years had come and gone, the 400-year generations that God had spoken of when he gave Abraham the promise in the very beginning, which we read it a moment ago, now this time of slavery and bondage and oppression had reached its zenith with the wickedness of the king trying to slaughter the male children and somehow engendered in the heart of this tribe of Levi, these faithful children of the covenant. And when Jochebed looked at her little baby Something within her soul says, this one is going to do what God promised. And so she hid him. And then after three months, she turned him over to the providence of God, put him in the bulrushes. Pharaoh's daughter found him, drew him out, named him, called for a nurse to take care of him. 
Moses' older sister Miriam found a nurse, a good nurse, <laughs> the right nurse, the providential nurse. Oh, if I was a preacher, I'd stop right here and preach how God always finds the right person at the right time to minister to us in the right way. And the Bible says that Moses was a faithful servant in the household of God. I'd like to say he got that from his mama. His mother had the faith to see what God was doing and knew that Moses was the man. He was raised and trained in Egypt. In fact, the extra canonical sources tell us that Moses was an expert in almost all the sciences of Egypt. Poetry, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and especially was he gifted in warfare. God trained him to fight and the tradition says that he led one of the great Egyptian campaigns against the Ethiopians as commander-in-chief of Pharaoh's army. But our text tells us when he came of age, when he matured, after having all that Egypt could offer, he made a decision. So the, the passage before us, and we'll just sort of skip over it as we go, we'll see the highlights, but it speaks of the faith of Moses' parents on the one hand as we begin our story, and it speaks of the faith of God's people on the other hand as we end our story as they successfully cross the Red Sea. So there's the faith before and the faith following Moses, but our passage highlights the faith of Moses. Moses' life and ministry arose out of the grand economy of God because of the heart of God. Let me read for you a passage. The people were in slavery in Egypt and they cried out to the Lord. And here in Exodus chapter 2, it says, And God heard their groaning. If I was a preacher, I'd stop right now and talk about how God hears us in our desperation. God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant with Abraham. Four centuries earlier, God had made a promise, a sheer word of promise to Abraham. And God had not forgotten. And you let the millennia come and the millennia go. And thousands of years later, God remembers His promise. You and I are saved today the same way that Abraham was saved. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. When God spoke of the offspring, he was talking of Christ. And Abraham believed in Christ. So we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the sovereign grace of God alone. We're saved because of a promise God made to Abraham. That's why he's called the father of our faith. And now God is remembering that promise. He made the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. Well, if I was a preacher, I'd stop here and talk about the all-seeing eye of God. He sees. He doesn't miss anything. His timing is not our timing. We may think we're getting away with something, 
but his discerning, all-seeing eye sees it. And we may think we're out of his sight, but we never are. God heard their cry. He remembered the covenant. He saw the people, and God knew. God knew. If I were a preacher, I'd stop right here, and I would talk about how God knows everything. The end from the beginning. He knows your frame. He knows your personality. He knows every sin. He knows every weakness. God knows. The omniscience of God. Now that was when God was thinking about what He was going to do when He was looking at the baby Moses. But this is 80 years later, 80 years later. God doesn't forget. He stays on track with his program. He does it in your life. You may pray today. You want your answer tomorrow morning. God may spend the time that he knows it takes to bring you to the place where you need to be. God didn't need just a warrior to lead his people out. He needed a shepherd. And so for 40 years, he had sent him into the wilderness to train as a shepherd. So now he was trained as a warrior and a shepherd, two skills that Moses is going to need all the way through the next 40 years of his life. God is working on you this morning to make the kind of vessel he needs, to do the kind of work he's going to do somewhere down the road. Maybe, maybe tomorrow morning, but maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, God will need you as an instrument in his hands that he has forged and fashioned you. And the Bible gives us examples. We are like clay in the potter's hands. We are like metal in the furnace being tempered and being purged for the Lord's work. And that's what God did with Moses. Providential all the way. 80 years later, God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. And you know the story there. And he identifies himself. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, this is the Lord speaking through the burning bush. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptian. If I was a preacher, I'd stop right here and I'd talk about how God comes down, condescends, found in fashion as a man, taking upon himself our condition in a great accommodation to our weakness, our blindness, our waywardness. God comes down and dwells in the midst of us. And he certainly did that in the incarnation of Christ. He said, I will come down and bring them out of the land. 
God says, I will save them from their oppression, from their slavery, from the thraldom of sin and depravity and degradation and idolatry that will take them down to the pit of hell. I'm going to rescue them from that. And that's good enough for me. But he says, I'm going to do more than bring them out of Egypt. I'm going to take them to the land of Canaan. And I don't know, I think I'm becoming a preacher. I'm going to go ahead and, and talk about it now. That's what the Lord does for us. He takes us out of the land we're in. We're living in a land of death. There's a pall on every doorpost. There's a wreath hanging from every residence. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God comes down and takes us out of that and takes us to the land of life, of milk, life-giving milk and honey, sweetness and blessing. He takes us to the land of Canaan. He takes us to the land of promise. He takes us to the land where He wants us to be. Now let's just survey quickly the life of Moses and see the faith that was involved in these operations. And it picks up there in verse 24. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, and that, of course, is what we talked about a moment ago when he had come of age, when he had the experience, when he had finally reached that point of maturity at about age 40 as when I think the reckoning is. When he had reached that age, he had grown to where he could make some decisions, and he did it. He refused, and he chewed. <laughs> he refused. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Do you know what that meant? She had adopted him. He was, there's a lot of speculation about whether he was the sole heir to the throne or not. I think he probably wasn't, but he was certainly a prince in the household of Pharaoh. But he refused that. And in refusing that, he turned his back upon a life of, of pleasure and a life of ease and a life of everything you could want out of life had been given to him the day she pulled him out of the bulrushes. But he had seen that, and he says, I don't want that for my life anymore. Now, God is sovereign in working in our life, but that doesn't take away our responsibility to make the right choices and to make them right and to make them correctly and to make them heartfelt and permanent. God expects every ounce of our will to be employed in the choosing of the right path in life. And that's what he did. His faith caused him to refuse and to choose. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What a contrast. Here's God's people persecuted in poverty, privation, destitution, slavery. God was even going to allow it to get worse than, than this before it was over. But Moses chose to take the path of God's people, whatever it was, whatever God had for them, rather than to take the path of sin. I like the old King James again where it says the pleasures of sin for a season. I'm telling you, sin is loaded with pleasure. It is fun 
to sin. You get that feeling of freedom, exhilaration, uninterrupted and unmitigated pleasure. But it's fleeting. It only lasts for a moment. God's verdict upon sin is they have wages. They have consequences. The wages of sin is death. And Moses now had seen that and understood that. Moses was making that critical decision in his life at this point, which I trust each and every one of you have made. And if you've not made it, this morning is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Today's the accepted time. There's no other day to be saved but today. Don't put it off. Choose. Choose. He considered. Moses thought it through. He thought it through not just at a superficial level, but at the deepest level. And he made an estimate that the reproach of Christ, here's where I talk about the writer being very new covenant. He just took what Israel was going through at the time to be the sufferings of Christ. Well, that's a complicated subject, but I love it. It just sort of gets into some subtleties. That really, There's a sense in which Christ is in the middle of the suffering of his people. So if you're suffering along with God's people, you're suffering along with Christ. Christ was with them all the way through the wilderness. He was there in type and symbol. He was there in cloud. He was there in spirit. He was there in, in the smoke off the altar. He was there in every sacrificial animal and on and on. And he was there in the priest, the high priest. All the way through, God is in the midst of the suffering of his people. I think that's what Paul might have meant when he said, I fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. In other words, we are in a fellowship of suffering with Christ. And even though Christ was not to appear for another 1,500 years, physically and literally, the very presence of Christ was with his people. And that's what Moses saw, is he wanted to suffer with Christ. The reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Now that's an assessment. It says he considered. You've got to make that evaluation. Are the reproaches of Christ... And remember the psalmist in several places says, the reproach of you, O Lord, has fallen on me. That's the way David felt at times. He was the only person in the ancient world that confessed the Lord so strongly and he would get ridiculed. And that happened to Christ in his persecution and finally in his sufferings on the cross. The reproach of God falls upon us. It is not the easiest path following the path of the biblical worldview, the biblical behavior track. But Moses made that assessment and he looked to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. By the way, the first time he left Egypt, he was scared to death of the king. He ran like a fleeing fugitive and he got way out into the desert, way out of the desert. The Midianites didn't dwell around the edges. They dwelled way out in the desert. He got as far away as he could. But do you know what he, first thing he found when he got out there? A well, a well of living water springing up into everlasting life. And there in that pastoral life, he followed in the footsteps of the fathers, the patriarchs. Oh, for generations, all they had known in Egypt was slavery, work, building buildings, making straw, making brick. All he had known had been the lifestyle of the young prince. But now God is restoring 
the pastoral and the shepherd lifestyle to the people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they had all been shepherds. And now God is restoring that. Is it interesting to you as it is to me that the, the tribe of people that sold Joseph in slavery in the first place were the Midianites? Remember that? The Midianite traders that picked Joseph out of the pit and took him down and sold him to Potiphar. And now the very first one to come out of Egypt, as Joseph had gone into Egypt 400 years earlier, the one to come out of Egypt was Moses. And where did he dwell? With the Midianites. Who were the Midianites, by the way? They were descendants of Keturah. Who was Keturah? She was the other wife of Abraham. They were not part of the holy lineage, but they're part of God's plan. And that's the way God has always designed it. There's not a tribe, not a nation, not a kindred anywhere that is considered absolutely reprobate. God has salvation open to all tribes, all kindreds, all people without distinction. Not necessarily all people without exception, but all people without distinction. Any and all, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He was not afraid of the anger of the king this time because he was coming out with the power of God. And you know the story of the, of the coming out. All the frogs and the boils and the gnats and, and the locusts and the water turning to blood and all those tribes. But the worst plague was the 10th plague and it was the plague of the death upon the firstborn. And God brought that about by his own hand. Don't try to tell me God does not have wrath upon a sinful rebellious, obstinate people. Over and over and over God had given Pharaoh and the Egyptian people the opportunity to let his people go. And finally, when the measure of God's wrath was full, he smote the firstborn. But there was an interesting thing, and it brings us to the last thing that it says here. He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood the word kept is the word he instituted or he ordained the Passover. The Passover was that meal in which God had commanded them specifically to do a ceremonial religious act. The only thing they were, had tried to do in Egypt was to circumcise, which was the sign of the covenant. But there was no tabernacle, there was no temple, there were no altars to the Lord, there was no Shiloh, there was no Bethel. There was no place they could go in Egypt. They were in Satan's land. But now God, in the midst of that, ordained a ceremony, a ritual. He gave them something to do, and it was a Passover, and it looked directly to the cross of Jesus Christ. They were to take a firstling of the flock. That's who Christ is. He's the firstborn among many brethren, the Bible tells us. And it says that He came from out of the flock. Jesus was one of us. He came... And they said his bones were not to be broken at all and his blood was to be spilled and the blood of that was to be splashed upon the doorpost. And then they were to roast, not boil, not fry, but roast. The fire of the anger of the wrath of God burned and cooked the carcass of the sacrificial lamb. And as it endured the fire, our Lord endured the wrath of God on your behalf. And that blood on the doorpost was the signal. It was the emblem that the blood had been applied and that the blood covered. It atoned. Whoever lived behind that door 
was covered by the blood of the Lamb. Do you live covered by the blood of the Lamb? Jesus took some of his disciples and he told a man, he said, I want to celebrate the Passover with my friends. And that's what he did. And we keep on doing it. 